All right, guys, so we are uh, in week four of a series called Handmade Disciples, and today is the last week in this series, and, uh, and we've talked about, we introduced this whole thing by talking about how um, some people are obsessed with this idea of handmade or handcrafted, and uh, I actually saw this last night, I was reading through something, um, do you guys ever get excited whenever new restaurants come to town? Do you get kind of pumped about that? No? So I get really excited whenever a new restaurant, I hear of a new restaurant coming to town. So I, I go on this certain website that's like a local deal here, and it'll say like what's coming to Temple and Belton. And I'm reading through this um, description of a restaurant that's coming to town here. I forget the name of it, but, uh, but what jumped out to me was um, they're going to be serving some handcrafted smoothies. And uh, I just thought, there you go. So there it is. Like, it's the handcrafted thing. It's something about it. People, like, they love to market that way. And so we do see this idea everywhere. It's, it's overused. We talked about that. Um, you never see advertised, um, you know, manufactured on the assembly line, right? It doesn't have the same ring to it. It doesn't sound the same. It's just not personal. Um, it's just not the same ring. So we love handmade. We talked about how we love this idea of handmade because it means somebody put their blood and their sweat into something. And uh, when someone's, I had on, on the first week I had a little statue here of something, and I said when something is handmade, we can see the little marks that someone left behind. We've talked about how this relates to discipleship, how your life should be marked by the lives of others, and how your life should mark the lives of others. And we should be able to ask you, what are some ways that other people have marked your life or that you've marked other people's lives in specific ways? And we've talked about um, these kinds of ideas. So uh, a quick review. Uh, week one, we asked, what is a disciple? We talked about how a disciple is basically a follower. That's the simplest way I know to define it. A disciple is a follower. And we talked about how in our culture, everybody today wants to be considered a leader. Everybody wants to be seen as a leader. Everyone doesn't want to, doesn't want to lead, but they want to be seen as a leader and viewed by others in that way, a pioneer of some kind. Now, in this series, we've talked about how... Um, uh, we've not just been trying to define the word disciple. We've been, we've been trying to define the process of discipling. We said discipling is doing deliberate spiritual good to help others follow Jesus. And we are, um, this should be happening in formal ways, but also informal ways. And we're going to discuss what that looks like uh, more today. My goal throughout this whole series has been to show you how even the formal or the program things that we do here are all for discipling. And when something doesn't measure up to the goal of discipling, then I'm, I'm fine to kill it. So a few years ago, there was a, a, a day, many, many years ago, when we used to do a ski trip in this high school ministry. And we did it three times. I tried it three times at this church. I know some of you guys are like, I wish I could have been a student here back then. That sounds like fun. 
But I had students that were clamoring and saying, hey, Dave, can we please do a ski trip? And, um, and so I relented. I said, okay, we'll, we'll do a ski trip. And I love, I own a snowboard, all right? Uh, one time I snowboarded down my street here in, when it snowed that one day, that one time in our lives here. Um, I snowboarded down my street. All right, I've got a video of it, okay? Um, then it was all gone by noon, but it was still fun when it happened. But I love snowboarding, but I was thinking, well, how does this ski trip line up with discipleship? And so the students would, they were talking me into it, and so we decided to do it. And, uh, and the problem was, I did it three years, different years, and every year I lost about $5,000 on the ski trip. And I thought, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. And another part of it was, um, we, you know, we, we, we have to make it spiritual, so we, we, we bring a speaker with us, and they do like a little devotional thing at night and, um, and those types of things, right? But I, I never could measure up, like, how does this, like, fit in with the discipling thing? And you could argue for, okay, well, I met this person on the ski trip, and we became really good friends, and now we're in. I mean, you can make a case for some of those things. But I think what, what I saw, the fruit that I saw from that trip, never measured up to discipleship. And so we decided just, we're, we're not doing this anymore. Plus, if I kept, I might get fired from all that money I would kept spending on that thing, you know. So I, I just, we canceled. We, we killed it. We killed it. And uh, so don't ever ask that question ever again, right? No more ski trips. But here's the deal. Um, we, I, if I can't make the connection on how something brings about discipleship, I'm not, I'm not going to do it here. We're not going to do it here. And I'm also trying to show you how um, the programs that we do, the things that we do on Sundays and Wednesdays and throughout the year, I want you to see today how all of this, some of the formal stuff should lead to some of the informal discipleship that should be taking place with us. And I think you see that through things like impact, right? I love how during impact, um, I'll see two people who barely knew each other now together. And I don't mean like guy-girl together, all right? I mean like they're, they're deep friendships that develop through things like impact and mission trips. And in week two, we talked about how this idea of the work of discipling, how difficult discipling can be. We said discipling is always Jesus-centered, it involves warning and teaching. It brings about maturity. It's always toil and labor. And it's always energized by Jesus. And then last week, Kim did a great job last week. That's posted online. Now, if you want to go listen, if you want to hear last week, she talked about the barriers to discipline. Do you remember what they were? I'm going to quiz you. I know it's not in school today, but what, what are the four things Kim said last week are barriers to discipline? You remember what they were? Just start shouting them out. The church, who, you, them, and life. You guys nailed it. Give yourselves a hand. You guys did awesome. All right. Good job. I was waiting for somebody to be like, Jesus. Like, no, no, he's not a barrier to discipling. That's, that's the other church answer you're looking for. Um, different question. Today I want to talk about discipling in community. 
And I mainly want to focus on the role that you play in this process of discipling. And I, and I hope that today is a little bit of, a, of an earth shifter for you and how you view this process of discipling. The primary way, the primary way discipling needs to happen is in community. That's the primary way in which discipleship should be happening. Now this word, community, we throw this word around a lot around here, community. We say, have, have community, and someone that's new is like, what? Like, what, what does that even mean? And here's some words that um, relate to community. So the first word, this, this middle word here is a Greek word, koinonia, which means fellowship. And it's still not cleared up for you, I know. Uh, so the related words to that would be things like common or sharing or participation, which maybe defines a little bit better for you. But the way I like to define it is this. It's, it's what takes place among people when you realize you have Christ in common. It's what takes place among people when you realize you have Christ in common. So... I've used the expression before, like, when, when you have Christ in common, you have all things in common. So you, you should never have to look for things in common with other Christians. You already have the most important thing, and the only thing, which is Jesus Christ himself. And this leads to things like we share, we share our possessions, and we also share our very lives because of what we have in common with Jesus, or in Jesus. Now, I've talked to you before about a church I grew up in that was highly dysfunctional. And I spent the first 19 years of my life growing up in this church. And there, as I was preparing this past couple of days, there are moments where I look back on that church and I just go, man, I don't know how in the world I'm a Christian today. I don't get it because of some of the dysfunction and the weirdness I saw in my church. So here's what my church did. We had three services, uh, three different times a week. Sunday morning, there was Sunday night, and there was Wednesday night. And all the services were pretty much the same. The pastor, he always wore a suit and a tie, always. That's what you do back then. And he would stand up, we would, we would do the song thing, we had a choir behind him, we did the whole thing, and he would stand up and preach on Sunday morning, he'd come back Sunday night, and he would preach again a different sermon, and then he'd come back Wednesday night, and he would preach a third time. And, and this is what happened, every, every, every week was the same week in my church, that's what we, what we, what we would do. Now they had this thing called uh, Sunday School. For kids and for some adults, where you would go there before you go to the main service on Sunday morning. And, but the purpose of Sunday school was pretty much this, a smaller version of the main service where you just go and there's a teacher up front and they just teach, a little bit of discussion, and then you go home. After, you go after the service and you go home after that. And um, the teaching or the focus at my church was pretty much on surrender. Surrender your life to Jesus and after that, there wasn't much direction. It was just come to know Jesus, keep walking with Jesus. And there wasn't really a focus on community or mission at my church. In fact, uh, I can recall the meanest teacher I ever had when I was in, I think, fourth 
maybe third or fourth grade. And there was this woman who taught like all the boys and the girls together. And her husband was kind of like a, a wimpy kind of guy. He was like afraid to speak. So he just kind of stood at the back and didn't say much. And she was the main teacher. And, um, and you walk into this room and it had like real smelly, like mildew smell carpet, just kind of nasty. And you walk in and she would just sit at the front and she would just teach us. And we're in third or fourth grade, so we want it to be fun. She was not fun at all. Here's what she would do. If you're, if you're interrupting what's happening on, up in the front of the, the classroom, um, use your imagination. We had this thing called a chalkboard, all right? Do you guys know what that is? You know what a chalkboard is? Okay. Making sure you know what that is. They don't use them now because allergies, but... Um, they had a chalkboard up on the front, and there was actual chalk. There was chalk. And, uh, and if you were, like, causing issues in the class, here's what she would do. She would just stare you down, like, give you the death stare. And then she would look at you, and she'd look at the board. She'd go over to the board. She'd grab some chalk, and she would draw this circle in the chalkboard and then fill it in. And she'd be like, you, come here. You go up and you had to stick your nose in the chalk and face the wall for the rest of the class. This was in third or fourth grade. All right? To which I'm wondering, I'm like, okay, I'm not a genius here, but if I was being distracting before that, how distracting is that going to be for every other kid in the class? It makes no sense. Like, she was just this mean person. Because here's how she viewed the Sunday school thing. Here's, she viewed it this way. She viewed it like, this is information transfer. My job as a teacher is to give you information. Your job is to sit there and shut up and listen and take it all in and walk out more like Jesus. That, that's how they viewed it. You, you just take it in, you, you sort of internalize, then you walk out. And... This was kind of the format in my entire church. Like you just, you teach, you learn, and you just go home. And there was no real focus on community and living on mission together as a people. And I didn't even understand that until I got to college. So we're trying to give you all about a 20-year head start in this deal. So when I talk about discipling, what is meant by discipling in community? I want you to think of a skeleton for a minute. Halloween's coming up, right? So think about a skeleton. So think about um, the formal programs that we do here, like the Sunday morning, the Wednesday nights, the uh, mission trips, the uh, impact, everything we do here. Think about that like a skeleton. Now, a skeleton is not good just by itself. So the skeleton could be considered like the formal programs that we do here. Um, throughout the year. Now I want you to picture all of the muscles and the ligaments and the tendons. These are like the relationships, the informal stuff. So a skeleton needs the muscles and muscles need the skeleton, right? We all agree on that? And you can't just have church programs and you can't just have relationships. You need both working together. So if you're someone who you just, 
you just show up here, you come to the program stuff, you sit, you listen, you kind of just, you're here, and you kind of walk out the door. If you just get the program stuff, and you don't ever really engage in community and in relationship here, then it's like a skeleton with no muscle. If you're someone who just, you walk through life, and you have some relationships, and some people you do life with, but you never get the structure and the teaching of the programs, then it's like muscle with no skeleton. And you can see how these both have to work together. You can't just have one without the other. So I want to discuss this morning, why are we talking about discipling in community? Or are we making that the focus as we talk about discipleship? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is because of spiritual gifts. Everyone in this room has one, if not several, spiritual gifts that you have to offer the body of Christ. When most of us think of discipling, we think of one-on-one. We think of just the, okay, this person discipling this person, this one-on-one relationship. And that's important, but it's not the primary way in which it should happen. And the reason why I say that is because of spiritual gifts. The gifts are meant to work together in unison. Everyone working together in in unison um, in community. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there. Ephesians 4, we'll start in verse 11. If discipleship is just one-on-one, then you miss out on everything I'm about to read in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 11, where it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, and that is sentence one. One sentence. Thank you, Paul. So now sentence two. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the people it's talking about in verse 11, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, why has God given these people to the church? We see in the next part of the verse, it's to equip who? To equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. I said this last week in the main service. The reason why we teach up here is so you can teach out there. So it can affect your person-to-person relationships. And look what, look what this whole thing results in. When that happens, well, it results in this building up of the body, this unity, this maturity. 
Look at verse, look back again at verse 14. I'm going to read just verse 14 again. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Do you know what happens when someone bails on the church? When someone bails on community? Verse 14 happens. I see it every time, without exception. When somebody begins to pull away from the body of Christ, I see verse 14 play out pretty much every single time. When they say, I don't need the skeleton, any, I don't need the structure, the bones. When they walk away from the, 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 the program, so to speak, or the people, I see what happens in verse 14, where next thing you you may hear of like, well, they're just kind of walking off away from Christ. They're just, they're doing their own thing, and they don't really see that this is really true anymore, and maybe the questioning began before they left here. Most of the time it does, but instead of dealing with their questions and doubts in the church and in the body of Christ, many times they just think, well, they can't handle me anymore, so I'm different now, and so they just walk off and go their own way. And then look at verses 15 and 16. It says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. This is why I say discipling needs to happen in community because you can't get verses 15 and 16 by just doing the one-on-one thing, and that's it. You can't get there. When each part, so look at me, every person in this room, you have gifts you can use. When each part is working properly, it, it makes the body grow up into unity and maturity together. This is why we need every single person in this room to be utilizing their gifts in the church. And what's really cool is the reason why God has spread out these gifts in this way is so that He gets the glory and not any one person. Do you see that? Of course, there are certain gifts. The Bible talks about this. There are some gifts that are more like upfront or more public. But every single person has gifts. And the reason why God hasn't given like one person or two people like all the gifts is so that God gets the glory and not any one person gets the glory and the credit for what God's doing in the church. Now, um, if you want to check out other passages besides Ephesians 4, I want to recommend on your own, just read Romans 12. You can read 1 Corinthians 12. You can read 1 Peter 4 and Ephesians 4. Those are the four passages. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, 
and Ephesians 4. Those are the four passages about spiritual gifts in the Bible. Now, here's the second reason why discipling needs to be in community. The second reason is this, the one another's. You may have heard the New Testament has a lot of one another passages. I'm going to cover these very, very quickly. But here's why it's important. I've got this friend who used to intern with me uh, many years ago. He was an intern here back when I was the junior high pastor, back when you guys were like, like itty bitty. And uh, he became a good friend of mine, and he's moved on. He's a football coach somewhere in East Texas. And, and now I just see what he says on social media a lot about small groups and community groups, life groups, whatever you want to call them. Um, he's always kind of bashing this idea on social media about how just dumb small groups are. Like, he just hates small groups. And I know this guy, and I'm like, I can see why he hates small groups. He's kind of a, he's kind of a rough guy, you know. He's just that way. He's not, he doesn't really like people that much, you know. You don't like people, you're not going to like small groups. That's just the way it's going to be. And what I would ask someone like that, if you're someone and you have the same mindset, you're like, man, all that mamby-pamby emotional stuff, and there's always that person there who's always trying to talk about how they feel, and um, I just don't want to do that. I can't handle that. I don't like those people. And so you pull out of community because of that dynamic. Then I would simply ask you the question, then where are you allowing the one another's to take place in your life? Because if you just show up and sit in a chair and then walk out and that's it, then where else in your life are you allowing the one another's to take place in your walk with God. So here they are real quick. Be at peace with each other. Mark 9.50. Who are you struggling to be at peace with? When you are with someone else in community, and it's a struggle to be at peace with certain people, you can thank God that it's teaching you the gospel that struggle is hopefully teaching you the gospel. Love one another, John thirteen thirty four. Rejoice with each other, Romans twelve fifteen. I love this one because it's a reminder that we are so connected, we are so unified in Jesus that when something good happens to someone else, it's like it's happening to everyone. And so because of that, you can... Rejoice with each other. Then we have weep with one another. So again, you're so connected to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If your friend is a Baylor fan, you are weeping with them. Right along with them. Like when they're 0-2, we're all 0-2 together. Right? And so we share in grief together. Then you have Galatians 6 2, carry each other's burdens. Ephesians 4 32, forgive one another. I preached on this last week, main service, Colossians 3 13, bear with one another. Who are you? So to you, the person who was anti small group, you just you just don't want to handle it. Who are you having to bear with? in your life. 
I'm going to tell you that if you avoid community groups or small groups or whatever you want to call them, if you avoid those kinds of settings and you just want your own little personalized, you're going to pick your spots. I'm going to just go meet with this one person over here because I just really, really like them. You see what you're doing? You're just, you're just picking people you like. You're never having to really bear with anybody because you have organized your little situation in such a way that you don't have to deal with any of that stuff. This is why I love the idea. I will tell you that all the pastors on staff at this church, I intentionally do not participate in a small group that has other TBC pastors in it. You know why? Because they're already my friends. We're already friends. Why would I do that? I want there to be people in my group that I have no idea who they are or where they come from, and we're different. I want that kind of diversity in my group because I want people that are vastly different than me. And I don't mean that to like say like bear with. I mean, I, I love the people in our group. But you know what? When you're in a group where there's others that can come in, it's you now have to bear with people you never thought you had would even meet. And that is a gospel. That is a good thing for you to have to grow in. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other. If you buck the idea of community, then who are you confessing your sins to? And you might think to yourself, well, why? I thought we just confess our sins to God. Like, that's, like, I thought the whole, like, going to a priest and confessing your sins was kind of a weird, outdated idea. No, you confess your sins to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what happens when you do that? It's like you come face to face with how, Firstly, how wicked you really are, because it's hard to tell someone how wicked you really are, isn't it? But then what happens when you recognize that is you're able to fully embrace the grace and mercy of Jesus because you've been honest. And it's a freeing thing when you do that. And then stir one another towards love and good deeds. Hebrews ten twenty four. If you hang around here long enough, at this church, especially in this youth ministry, um, you'll start doing things. You'll start doing things like, yeah, impact and mission trips. I remember a girl in, stood on stage here for our New York stories, and she said, a friend of mine said last year, a couple of years ago, how this impacted her. And so I heard that and thought, yeah, I got to go to New York. Or one of you is going to tell your friend, how impact really changed your life and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to stir them up towards love and good deeds. I've seen this happen in our church with adoption. There are many people in our church that have adopted kids. And you know how it happens? Because somebody feels called to do it, but they feel kind of scared to do it. And then they realize that, well, this person over here adopted like three kids and they're, they're okay. And I, I think we can do this. And you see how it stirs up people in the body of Christ towards love and good deeds. So to anyone who 
is against the idea of being plugged into community, I would ask you this question. Then how are these things being played out in your life right now? Where is that happening? Where is it happening? Now turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll close with this passage. Ephesians 2, 13 to 14. All the one another's that I've talked about so far are only possible because of one thing, and it's the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verse 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So those of you in this room that have not much in common externally, and you're looking around and you're thinking, I don't know what I have in common with these people here. I'm not sure about that. Once you're far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is how the one another's can come into play because of the cross. So how can we be at peace with each other? It's because Jesus is at peace with you. How can we rejoice and weep with one another? Because Jesus makes us one. How can we carry each other's burdens? Because Jesus carries yours. How can we forgive each other? Because Jesus forgives us. How can we bear with? Because Jesus bears with us. And so you see, all of this has to be rooted in the cross and what Jesus has done for us. So this is a picture of discipling in community. This is all the gifts working together. This is all the one another's lived out. So the entire body is built up into this Christ-centered, God-glorifying unity. And this kind of thing can't just happen one-on-one. It's bigger than that, more than that. The church was never meant, that's why you have to have both. You've got to have the skeleton, but also the relationships, the muscle, working together. The church was never meant to just churn out Christians through some magical programs. But there has to be relationship and community happening along the way. I want to close with this last thought. This guy named David Kinnaman wrote a book called You Lost Me. It's a book about how the, your generation, the current generation, is sort of checking out and bailing on the church He says, we are at a critical point in the life of the North American church. The Christian community must rethink our efforts to make disciples. Many of the assumptions on which we have built our work with young people are rooted in modern, mechanistic, and mass production paradigms. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. What he's getting at is, yeah, we have the programs. We we can't be just programs. It can't be just that. You can't expect to just churn out disciples like a factory because you're magic programs. Let's read on. He says, Some, though not all, ministries have taken cues from the assembly line. 
doing everything possible to streamline the manufacture of shiny new Jesus followers, fresh from the factory floor. But disciples cannot be mass-produced. Disciples are handmade, one relationship at a time. So I want to invite you, everyone in this room, I want to invite you to get your hands dirty this year and help us make disciples. And we've, you're going to hear about lots of things come up. You're going to hear about yeah, programs and, and all that we do. And I just don't want you to miss the picture, the bigger idea, that every single thing that we do here, whether it is Sundays, whether it's Wednesdays, whether it's equip groups, whether it is impact, whether it's the mix, whether it's um, whatever happens in our week-to-week things that we do here. It is all being driven by making disciples. But what needs to happen, though, is that each one of you are willing to step out in relationship because all we can do is create the structure. We need you all to add the muscle and the relationships and the community. And that has to be a decision that you make. And as the one another's and the gifts begin to work together, the entire thing is grown and built up as we all mature together in Christ through community. So I want to invite you, if you're someone that is a, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're not even a believer yet, you're not a follower of Christ yet, I want to ask you, I want to invite you this school year, this week, today even, that you um, become a follower of Christ that you turn to Jesus and you call on his name through prayer and you say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need you to save me from my sin. I believe you died on a cross to pay the price for my sin. I believe you resurrected. And I want to be identified with you. I want to follow you. And if that's where you're at, you can just you can pray and tell God that. You can pray and tell him that. I want to invite you to become a disciple along with us, if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Christ, then I want, you to, I want to invite you to help us make more. Help us make more this coming uh, semester and beyond as we grow in Christ together. Father, we're grateful, we're thankful that we get to be a part of this process. We get to be a part of discipleship. And you've called all of us to it all of us to be disciple, but also to disciple as we utilize our gifts in the body of Christ. We thank you for that call and that honor. And it's humbling that you've called us into that. We praise you for, um, for that high call in our lives, Lord. We praise you for it. We pray this in your name. Amen. You guys have some discussion questions at your tables. Go ahead and jump into some questions here for a few minutes.